Welcome to Calling a City to Life, a podcast by Queen's Park Baptist Church in Glasgow. Each week you'll hear from us two episodes, the talk and the chat. First up is the talk, and that's the audio version of this week's sermon as preached at Queen's Park Baptist. So this is your opportunity to listen to it again or to listen to it for the first time. And later on in the week, you'll be able to tune in again and download the chat where we gather around and discuss in a bit more detail some of the issues and themes raised in this week's talk. Thanks for tuning in to the talk. We hope you enjoy it. And we look forward to you tuning in again later in the week. Enjoy. Thanks, guys. Please take a seat. And uh, just before we come into uh, God's Word, we just had a number of of words that people have shared. Uh, Nikki's just been sharing a word about someone who finds himself in a, a dark place, um, a, a kind of like a, a garden, but in that place there are flowers beginning to uh, appear and just God beginning to, to do things. Um, we also just had a word about that sense of being very fragile and God's promise that a bruised reed he will not break. And in many ways, I'm sure many of us, for all sorts of reasons, just living in this world at the moment, feels like we are bruised reeds uh, and broken people. Um, and that may be just, maybe just with that sense of disappointment and perhaps even despair or frustration that you find yourself here uh, this morning. And I just think those two words kind of take us to a place uh, that a word that Nanette shared with us uh, really uh, speaks into. And Nanette's word was just about God's continual downpour of grace, that God's continual position to us is one of outpouring of himself. And if you step out into a shower, whether you like it or not, you're going to get wet. And it was an encouragement to us just to step into the life of God and remember that in him, there is everything that we need for life in this world. So let me just pray. Lord, we come as bruised reeds. We come as, as battered people in hope, believing that new things will spring up. And Lord, we thank you that you come to us this morning as the one who continually outpours all of that you are. You do not withhold your Holy Spirit from us. And so we come in faith believing that, that wherever we come from, whatever we have experienced, your Holy Spirit is sufficient for this morning. And we pray, Lord, that you would release to us the very life of heaven, even as the life of earth withdraws hope from us. We pray that the kingdom of heaven would break in and release hope and life in the name of Jesus through your word and for your glory. Amen. Amen. Well, those of you who are visiting us this morning, you have come on the best morning of the year, perhaps even of the decade, because today uh, I am delighted to tell you that the topic of our study in the book of Revelation, yes, the book of Revelation, this is the topic that you've been waiting for for week after week. Today, we're going to be examining and learning about the great prostitute of Babylon. Thank you. So let's read about that. And uh, you'll need to uh, get your Bible open and turn to Revelation 17. Revelation 17, this uh, whole um, 
section really runs to 19. We're not going to read all of that, but I'm sure you'll get the gist of what God's Word is saying as we dig into the first uh, section of it. So, Revelation 17, verse 1. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, that's the bowls of God's wrath, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the spirit carried me away, sorry, then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand, filled with an abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. This title was written on her forehead, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. And uh, we're going to go on just a little bit uh, to verse 18. And uh, John has uh, a second uh, revelation. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins have piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. So, and chapter 19, verse 1. After all this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And they shouted, Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. Wow. Okay. I want to begin this morning with a confession. I was told you should never begin a sermon with a confession. But here we go. My confession is that we recently, Anne and I, had a Netflix binge watch. That's it. We were glued to a particular series of programs. The series was called All the Light We Cannot See. That's my recommendation to you today. It is a beautiful cinematic adaptation of a Pulitzer Prize winning book by Anthony Doerr. It follows a story of a blind French girl and a German boy who is a whiz with radios. And these two individuals are increasingly being overcome by the great darkness that is the 
Second World War and the forces of Nazism. And there on opposite sides of this conflict, they tune into a radio channel, Shortwave 1310. Remember Shortwave, old people? Okay, obviously you don't. You missed something. Then they're drawn into a message, the message of a better and a brighter world. A message that cuts through the darkness and the fear and death. And in this story, radio symbolizes a spectrum of light and goodness beyond our human ability to hear, and yet more powerful than the propaganda of hatred and war. That, for me, is an amazing summary of the book of Revelation. Because Revelation invites you and I in the midst of the chaos around and about us and the pressure that we feel we experience as God's people, Revelation asks us to see and to hear a spectrum of truth that is beyond our natural reach. Revelation asks us to see light that we cannot see. Revelation invites us to hear hope that we cannot infer from the world around about us. Revelation invites us to grab hold of truth that penetrates the fog around us and the arguments and the self-delusion. And how much do we really need to tune in to God and into heaven's signal as we dig into Revelation 17 and 18? And just as we do that, I want to let you know that we have jumped over seven bowls of wrath. Uh, We've done that because you've already seen this recurring crescendo of evil and seven trumpets, and so on, that extend even to the most horrendous evil before Christ returns. You've already been there, so we're jumping over it. And also because Christmas is coming, and we need to get there. But also, thirdly, we need to avoid the wrath, because John himself is yanked away from this vision by an angel. One of the angels holding a bowl of wrath says, come over here, get yourself Here, John, because there's a crucial scene that you have to see. And he says, come, I will show you the sentencing of the great prostitute. That's verse 2. And John is given this vision of this most horrendous scene and the most disturbing character in the whole of Revelation. So this morning, ladies and gentlemen, I give you Babylon the Great, the mother of all prostitutes, and of all the foul idolatries of the earth. Aren't you glad you turned up at church today? This is, I'm not sure if I can even get this to work. Here we go. Babylon is a formidable figure. She is painted as being dazzlingly attractive. She is intensely alluring, and she's adorned with purple and scarlet cloth. The signs of status and power, and she has a bloodlust for all who are faithful to Jesus. Now, before you get totally ever overwhelmed, notice what John sees. He sees the sentencing, the condemnation of this power, not as victory, but as vanquishing. And Revelation always has the perspective of heaven a perspective that declares that God in Christ has overcome, and in him we can have hope. 
And so this message of his got a name this morning. The name is Babylon has fallen. Babylon is disempowered. The forces that stand against the children of God will not remain. And so we begin with a question that you have been asking all of your lives, or maybe just for the last five minutes. What is Babylon? Well, as you know already, we're in this weird world of prophetic imagery. So Babylon is an image, a symbol, not an actual place or person. Though for John, Babylon manifested as the Roman Empire in all its pomp and power. In fact, if you look at verse 9, you'll see that Babylon sits on seven mountains, just as the city of Rome did. The woman is clothed in purple, the sign of Roman imperial status. But Babylon is more than one place and one time. Babylon is an image, a timeless trope, if you like, for sin that's concentrated in the structures and beliefs and the social, social policies of a society. I haven't got time to explain all of that, but I just want to recommend this morning, I know some of you have already been talking about this as we've come to church today, but Revelation for the Rest of Us by Scott McKnight is, I don't know, 500 pages, 300 pages of reference to Babylon and what it's all about. Great book about being a disciple in the current world. Babylon names the weaving of all that is anti-God and anti-Christ, all the idolatries of the dragon that we heard about a few weeks ago, into the fabric of our lives and society. Or to put it uh, this way, Babylon exists wherever socio-political power coalesces into an entity that stands against the worship of Yahweh, of God. Exists where power stands and coalesces into an energy that stands against the honoring and glorifying of our God. And so Babylon finds its place in the familiar stories that we tell ourselves in our societies about our lives, about why we're here and what we're for and what the world looks like. Babylon coalesces in our culture, and it is continuing to do that. In the West, we have forgotten that much of the values and the perspectives that we have in society have been inherited from a Christian source. Uh, and those of you who, uh, like me, are fans of Tom Holland, the uh, popular historian, he makes a case for this really powerfully and strongly in his book, Dominion. We are the beneficiaries of Christian values. In fact, Holland goes on to say that his own fascination with Christianity came when he actually looked closely at Roman culture and found out how violent and unequal and unjust and debauched the society was. He realized we do not live downstream from that, but from the cross and resurrection. Of course, you don't need me to tell you that for decades now, we've been cutting away out the roots of our Christian heritage in this country, to the extent that there are even some atheists now that don't believe in God, but want to take hold of Christian values because they see the value of what they've inherited. But also, we Christians have ingested some of those ungodly beliefs that are 
in our culture, our history, and our society. And we need to recognize that Babylon creeps into the church. And we're going to look at how we release ourselves from that. But even as we do that, it seems to me that in the years that we are in now and as we go ahead, as our country becomes more secular, it will be more straightforward and obvious to stand out as a Christian because your views and values will be so different. But it will be increasingly more difficult to stand up as a Christian in our society because of the pressure. Babylon is aggressive. There's an article appearing in a newspaper, a national newspaper today, condemning a Glasgow church for comments that have been made, some, a church that a number of us pray with. Don't buy that paper. But that is the pressure that we find ourselves in. Babylon is aggressive. It is the culture that is anti-Christ. But it's good for us to know what it looks like because it's impossible to extract yourself from something that you don't recognize. So let me uh, I just run through some of the things that it seems to me Babylon manifests as uh, we read about it in Revelation 17. The first thing that we need to know about the culture of influence that is around us is that it is alluring. Babylon is seductive. We're told here that uh, she is clothed in purple. Purple was the color of the Roman cursus honorum, the ladder of value that you scaled to be an important person and a respectable individual, to be credible and even to be cool in Roman society. So Babylon tells us of what is important, what would make us respected and valued and appreciated in our society. And we'll find that pressure as you engage in the world. Those of you who are moral crusaders will feel the pressure to conform to a current morality, to be on the right side of history, as we're told. And so every now and then we do a bit of a moral handbrake turn so we fit in with the people who are around us. There's a pressure. It's seductive. If you're a justice warrior, then you'll know that it's so easy to get pulled into a political agenda of the day. If you tweet a particular comment about Gaza or about Israel, then you know that you'll get likes from the people you want to like you. Babylon is seductive. It's easy for Christians to trade that distinctiveness in our families, in our workplaces, in our, the organizations that we're part of. It's easy to trade that to be relevant, to be cool, to be accepted. It's easy to be drawn into the office banter and behavior. It's, it's difficult when organizations encroach their values into your value system, into your own personal value system, and you have to assign yourself to what the organization or government or business demands you hold to. Babylon is seductive. It's also opulent. I'm sure you got that from the description of Babylon sitting on the, uh, the beast. She is dressed not just for success, but as success. Babylon has accumulated wealth and the trophies of success. One of the things that that tells us is that Babylon is always communicating 
that more is better. René Guinon, a French philosopher, described the 21st century as the reign of quantity. We find ourselves in a place where having more, doing more, being more, accumulating more, being a bigger business, having more um, staff, having a better economy, everything is about quantity. Our heads get turned by quantity. And, and here's a personal confession. We church leaders get vulnerable about numbers. So when you don't turn up on a Sunday morning and it's just because the parking is bad or something, and I don't know that, my little heart gets all vulnerable to saying that. So turn up. It helps me, even if it doesn't help you. No, I'm not saying that. But even churches measure God's blessing by numbers. I'm at an event this next week about church, and a session of this event is called Increase. I'm nervous already. You see, we have this mentality that we measure value by numbers. Babylon is opulent. She has the trophies of success. There's more we could say about that, of course. Babylon is also militaristic. We see this a fierce creature doing battle, specifically doing battle against the followers of Jesus. Babylon tells us that you get things done by exercising force, that violence is the means to fix problems or a conflict. And I find that seductive. I mean, that's quite tempting sometimes. I mean, more confession time. There's once or twice where people in the church don't get on, and I kind of think, I just I could knock your heads together. You see, we revert to violence as a means of solving problems. And when we only see violence as a solution, we're buying in to Babylon. I was personally challenged this week listening to an interview with an Israeli uh, Jewish Christian peacemaker. And um, without saying anything really complex or hopefully not controversial. Uh, this lady said, as a Christian, my first citizenship is in the kingdom of God. And she said, if I cannot weep equally for the children of Israel and of Gaza, then something is wrong with me as a Christian. Babylon is militaristic, invites us to take sides, invites us to see solutions in the realm of force and coercion. I need to move on. Babylon is also arrogant. Babylon exalts itself. This whole uh, account is of an, an individual or an image that, uh, that, that proliferates, that presents itself as being over all things. And Babylon shows up in our hearts when the pressure is to believe that life is all about me that I want to be the hero of the story, or that for my identity to be formed, I just need to express everything that I am, all I want to do, good, bad, or ugly. Or if we're in a leadership position to trade achieving the purposes that we've been asked to or called to, to trade that for popularity or for promoting self. Babylon creeps. It creeps into our hearts. And then finally, Babylon is all about idolatry. Babylon is presented as a prostitute 
promoting unfaithfulness, inviting people to align with itself. And fundamentally, spiritual adultery is an image that's used throughout the Old Testament. It speaks of idolatry, of finding wholeness in created things rather than the Creator. G.K. Chesterton was a, a, a really uh, influential Christian leader uh, about hundred and odd years ago, but he was also a comic, and uh, some of his comments are really well worth reading. But he once declared against Karl Marx that it's irreligion that is the opium of the people. It's not religion that fills people's hearts. It's actually irreligion. And he said, wherever the people do not believe in something beyond the world, they will worship the world. And above all, they will worship the strongest thing in the world. Isn't that powerful? That where our hearts are not consumed with a passion for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that our passions will be diverted to created and created things. Idolatry. And it would be remiss of me not to say that in this passage, there are strong sexual undertones in all this imagery. The fact is that Roman Christians were not in a place where they were being pressurized to follow one political party or another political party. Their main issue for many of them was that they were daily saturated in a deeply sexual debauchery. And being distinctive as Christians meant living and expressing a different sexual ethic. How similar to our culture today. Carl Truman wrote that sex in our culture is identity. Sex is politics. Sex is culture. And central to this thinking is the notion that traditional sexual codes that value celibacy and chastity actually militate against authenticity. Let me say that again. Everything in our culture is measured against sexual identity and sexual expression. Sex is identity. Sex is politics. Sex is culture. And central to that thinking is the notion that traditional sexual codes that value celibacy and chastity militate against authenticity. You're not real if you don't let it rip sexually. Navigating discipleship in Babylon is tough. It's not easy. People fall, churches fail, and hurt and damage is a consequence. But we need to navigate our life, just as the generations before us have through Babylon. And so, my second point today, out of 11 points, just saying, second point, out of two points, is this invitation, this call and command to come out. In chapter 18, John hears a voice from heaven verse 4, saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, and you will not receive her plagues. You see, the call to Christians 
in this culture and in any society and in any age is to break ranks with what we have received. It is to tune in to the frequency of a different spirit and to hold to that which we cannot see. How on earth, literally, do we do that? Let me suggest a few uh, comments that really come from the whole of Revelation, but are also contained in these chapters. First of all, I want to suggest that we need a conversion. We need a conversion not only of our hearts, but of our imaginations. We need to become worshippers in a chaotic world. You see, we human beings, I know you don't think this about yourself, but it's true. We don't think rationally about the world. We actually behold the world as much through our imagination, our stories, our experiences, through pictures and in images. And these words and these revelations offer us a unique and new and God-centered vision of reality. We see God's vision, God's alternative. Listen to chapter 18, verse 20. Rejoice over her, rejoice over Babylon, O heaven. Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way she treated you. God has judged Babylon on behalf of his people. Babylon is judged. Babylon is fallen. There is a new city coming, a holy and perfect city. Our imagination is not to be captivated by the decaying and failing Babylon, but by the new Jerusalem that is coming, by a new image of God putting things right and putting everything in place. You see, throughout Revelation, we are called to sing the song of the Lamb. We're called to lift our eyes and our hearts up and see true reality. Because this image of victory arises as John worships. It arises as John encounters the living Christ and the supernatural power of heaven. We need to find ourselves positioned in a place of worship that reveals true reality. Good worship should reconstruct a true reality in our souls. Walter Brueggemann, the Old Testament scholar, said, Israel's praise is a dangerous and a joyous witness in a different world. So whether you sing whether you speak, whether you be silent, whether you worship with your hands, your feet, you put your left leg in or your right leg in, or whether you turn around, it doesn't ultimately matter as long as it is focused on Christ and it renews your imagination. It restores a vision of God. So get to it, not just on a Sunday morning, but every morning. Find ways to seek the Lord. Find ways to dwell on him. Fill your heart with songs of worship that will tra transform your vision. Be a worshiper. The second way we can be a dissident disciple is to speak the word faithfully. Babylon is a power of ideology. It is a way of thinking. It is ungodly thoughts that have rested in our hearts and minds. So we need to be word 
or bears. We need to be people who put the word into practice in our lives. Revelation 10 verse 9, John is invited to take a little scroll, to take it and to eat it. And the angel says, I'll turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. God's word is transformative when we ingest it, when it becomes part of who we are. So digest his word. Fill your heart with his truth because the lies of Babylon are undone by the truth of God. And it will be that for all of us, there are specific messages that have been loaded into our souls from the social context we've been in, from our family history, from things that have happened and things that have not happened. And we live out of these words. But God calls us to live out of his word. And so we need to get his word in so we get Babylon's word out. We are to live as word obeyers. Let the word dwell in you richly that you might be transformed. And lastly, thirdly, we are to live the truth outwardly. We are to be authentic witnesses. You see, to be in Revelation is to be a witness, to be an individual that represents the glory of the Lamb. And there are public consequences of personal witness. This is not just a private piety that has no consequence. Because disobedience to the dragon, stepping out of sync with Babylon, means that we are in conflict with a world that is following the state and influence of Babylon. So folks, the Lamb of God has grabbed a hold of you, enlisted you into his side. He smuggled you out with the cross as his banner from under the rule of the dragon. And he's put you in a kingdom where every value of Babylon has been inverted, the kingdom of God. Bono, the singer, um, was asked to speak at the commencement address of the University of Pennsylvania back in 2003. He said this, began this way, he said, those who may serve their generation must first betray it. If you're to be a dissident disciple, you must first betray the ways of this world and the word of Babylon. You must choose to betray the self-serving, seductive, impertinent and arrogant power of Babylon and step into the kingdom of God. Because that is where life is to be found. Not in our self-fulfillment or self-gratification, not in a way of exalting our own glory or our own power, but in the way of a life laid down. The way of the cross that inverts the ways of the world. And here we are, trying to follow the Lamb resisting the temptations to conform. But take hold of this. Babylon has fallen. The power is gone. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Be strong and have hope and give Babylon a kicking this week. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's Calling a City to Life talk. We hope that you enjoyed it and that you'll join us again later in the week for the chat. Speak to you again soon. Goodbye.